I have probably told this story before, but it bears repeating. About a dozen or so years ago, in the context of all things new prayer ministry, I was part of a prayer appointment with a woman whose Christian therapist brought her and stayed with her in the appointment. From a very young age, this woman had been abused on multiple levels by authority figures and by family members. She came to a point where she literally lost her voice. She spoke in barely audible whispers. To be honest, I don't remember much of the appointment, but by the leading of the Holy Spirit, we came to a time when we invited her to speak, and we joined with her in speaking with one voice, our united volume increasing slowly. I think we had prayed prayers of being and belonging over her from Ephesians 4, and what we spoke together was, Jesus, I belong to you. But I don't even remember that with clear certainty. What I do remember well is that while she never spoke as loudly as the rest of us, she did get to a normal speaking volume. And for us in that sacred moment, it was a song of victory. There's a stirring contemporary worship song titled, Raise a Hallelujah. One phrase, my weapon is a melody, calls to mind the united voices of Paul and Silas in a Philippian prison, praying and singing hymns to God. God heard their songs of worship and responded back with an earthquake resulting in salvation for their jailer and release for them. Perhaps some of us are experiencing an imprisonment of sorts this afternoon. It may be that the burdens that we are carrying for ourselves or alongside someone else, or the burdens of wars and conflicts in the world, or the distressing cultural changes all around us, are weighing it, us down, and we are finding it difficult to raise our voices and to speak the truth of God's love above a whisper. So I want to invite each one of us, nestled within the supportive community of Church of the Redeemer at about 449 on Sunday, October 29, 2023, to raise a hallelujah as the chorus of that worship song declares, because heaven comes to fight for us. And as I spent time preparing this sermon for chapter 3 of Philippians, the melody of that Christ song, that hymn, that gospel song from Philippians 2, the previous chapter, was like this melodic leet motif. I just couldn't get away from it. And so I asked Father Paul to pray it over us as a weapon of unsurpassed beauty that it is as we look to the Lord to raise a hallelujah in our hearts. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Let's just continue that prayer for a minute. Lord, humble our hearts to receive every shred, every crumb of hope and life, joy and peace you've prepared for us today. May we hear and respond to the invitation of your word to rejoice. May we joy with you as the most beautiful, sovereign focus of our joy. It is all about you. We turn to you and worship you, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So the Philippian church to whom Paul addressed this letter had at its core Gentile believers who Paul had met earlier in his travels. It included the household of Lydia, a businesswoman who was a committed worshiper of God. It included the slave girl whose exorcism from demons was what resulted in Paul and Silas's imprisonment. And it included the family of the Philippian jailer whose salvation came about following those songs of worship and the earthquake I just mentioned. So Paul seeks to safeguard the faith of this young community by reminding them to keep the main thing the main thing. Their faith in Christ, their life in Christ is all about Christ. Now, it might seem odd to us at, right after the beauty of chapter 2 that Paul starts talking about circumcision the way that he does as mutilation. But Paul thinks that it's necessary for this congregation because certain Jews have been showing up in the gatherings of new believers and they are saying, well, now in order for you really to walk in our faith, you have to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, no, if you do that, that's like following the pagan cults around us who cut themselves in their frenzied worship to God. This is no longer a part of what it means to walk in faith. Paul is saying, when he says, we're the true circumcision by the Spirit and by the glory of Christ himself. Or as he says in Romans 2.29, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual, not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. Now, I don't actually have time to trace the understanding of circumcision and true circumcision of the heart that's embedded in the Old Testament. So I I only want to say that this much is very clear. God is always concerned about the state of human hearts. In fact, the passage that we just heard from Exodus, like many Old Testament passages, elucidates this very thing. God's chosen covenant people are to conduct themselves in their relationships in a manner that blesses others. 
And this manner of life is always supposed to come from repentant hearts, cut off from sinful ways, soft towards God and God's ways. Torah, law, was always meant to be about life and love. In Philippians 3, when Paul says, we are the circumcision, it is about hearts fully devoted to Jesus. Paul's life had been profoundly changed when he saw that the doors of the uh, community of the Jewish faith, the community that he had religiously followed, had suddenly been fl- flung open for everyone. And he now understands, wait, that actually has always been God's plan, blessed to be a blessing. And Paul's former ways of thinking and living had at its center Jewish law. And now suddenly, and we see this in Acts chapter 22, while Paul was traveling to persecute Christians, he's blinded by the light. He's blinded by Christ. And he suddenly realizes, oh my goodness, it's Christ at the center. And with Christ at the center, everything is opened up. And so Paul then throws out all the things that he used to add up because he was convinced at that time in his life that those were the things that made his life count before God and others. And now he says, rubbish. It's literally only about knowing Christ. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. And so when Paul says, rejoice in the subject of your rejoicing, Rejoice in the Lord. Because joy, in Hebrew scripture, according to N.T. Wright, is when God finally does something that people have been waiting for, like the exodus or the return from exile. So there's a joyful celebration because God has finally acted and brought about a new day. So people were celebrating. We used to have this complete mess, and now look what God has done for us. God acted and changed it all. So Paul sings this new song boldly and loudly that in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, God has acted. And this joyous new song is the weapon for a life and flourishing. So I wonder if the kind of joy that Paul is commending to the Philippians is weakened in the lives of believers today because we've become so enamored with the ideologies of our day. Like Paul's Judaism, perhaps without even realizing it, we've become, well, maybe slaves to our own favorite ism, whatever it is. Or, Maybe it's our own unhealed, unresolved wounds and suffering. Or maybe it's our comfort-driven lifestyle. All of these things being center stage in our lives instead of Christ. Maybe we're singing the Christ song at the level of a whisper, or maybe not singing it at all. Michael Horton describes the alternative gospel of the American church as Christ-less Christianity. 
Christ has been displaced by a moralistic, therapeutic deism with no need for a risen Lord. So just consider those three categories with me for a minute. Number one, moralistic. The Barna Research Group reports that the average millennial Christian, Christian consumes over 3,000 hours of digital content a year, only 150 of which is Christian. So we become what we contemplate. Our psalm, Psalm 1, exhorts, delight in the counsel of the Lord and his people. And Paul says, know Christ, be shaped by the truth of the gospel. Number two, therapeutic. John Mark Comer says, Christless faith has resulted in undisciplined, undiscipled flesh that is coddled and given free reign rather than conquered by the Spirit's power. According to one theologian, exchanging the categories of sin and grace for such therapeutic categories as dysfunction and recovery represents pastoral cruelty. Because if we feel guilty, maybe we really are guilty. As Horton puts it, true power is thought to be accessed not by looking upward, but inward. But Paul says our righteousness is found in Christ. Number three, deism. There are many formerly vibrant Christians with deeply wounded hearts, wounded by a Christian leader, wounded by corruption in the church, maybe wounded in a Christian family of origin. Perhaps you've experienced this, or you know others who've been so wounded. They still believe in God, but the God they believe in exists generically for the pleasure of mankind or for the pleasure of themselves. Paul says, know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of life, the living Christ life embodied in us, as Deacon Andy named it two weeks ago, is to be the operative melody of our lives. Whether it is in the constant barrage of worldly ways or words or our own moods, our hearts are at risk to being taken captive by the enemy. And you know, there is truth in worldly wisdom. Do hard things is important. But doing hard things with the resurrection power of Christ at the center is to be able to lift our voice and sing in the face of the enemy. We don't have to whisper because Christ is the song of the Redeemer. We just join our voices with his. And thankfully, joining our voices with Christ and experiencing Christ's suffering includes the honesty of lament. We do groan over our personal suffering and suffering in the world. Yet our suffering is undergirded by the melody of the power of Jesus' resurrection. 
N.T. Wright says, unless you believe in a God who is creator and redeemer, there is no point in lamenting. Lament implies that we are coming to God. And when we do so, we come like the psalmists who say, Lord, please wake up, do something. The world may not know it, but we know that Jesus is gloriously in charge and is making all things right. Daniel Nayeri, author of Everything Sad is Untrue, says it this way, While this life will bend and break us, someone will return who will make everything sad untrue. Jesus took on human flesh that he might lift all of creation out of the depths of the pit into which we had consigned ourselves. God has acted in time and space, coming into his creation by sending his son, Christ Jesus, and has raised him from death. With the Apostle Paul, we surrender to his fierce love. We have gained Christ. Let us earnestly desire to know him. Whom to know is to know as Lord. To follow Christ as Lord is to embrace the, vision, the vocation that Jesus calls all his followers to embrace. Christ Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. Serving is foundational to all Christians. Jesus explained to his disciples, those in authority lord it over others, but I do not do so. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples at his last meal with them. From this highly countercultural gesture, Jesus modeled the path to whole and holy joy. The whole letter Paul wrote to the Philippians rests on the song of Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Even as the Apostle Paul suffered with Christ, he was also able to enter into the victory and the joy of laying aside all the things he formerly gloried in, pressing on to make Christ's manner of life his own. But did you notice in, chapter, in uh, verse 12 that Paul flips it and says, and Christ Jesus has made me his own, or as some translations say, Christ has laid hold of me. Those who have been grasped by the gospel of Jesus, those in whose hearts the Holy Spirit has been at work, now have a specific role, a task, within God's ongoing purpose. God works with us. We work with God. You know, I've only been ordained and served as a deacon for just over six years. And the diaconate is the foundational order of the clergy. All ordained clergy are always deacons. And here is a wonderful truth. With Christ as our Lord, we are all deacons. All believers take Christ's example as their own, Christ's example of serving as our own, which means we submit to and serve others out of love, humility, and compassion as Christ served. 
Dr. Jerry Brashear defines agape love as loyalty and commitment to serve a person so that they become more like Jesus, even if it means I give up my own rights and privileges as Jesus did for that one. This is our vocation. A few minutes ago, I spoke of Christ as the center of our Christian faith. One of the beautiful symbols in this liturgical service, which the deacon has the joy of enacting, is to highlight Christ at the center. The Gospel book on our altar symbolizes Christ's presence. When the deacon takes the book from the altar, lifting it high, being careful not to trip down the stairs, while the congregation lifts a hallelujah to the Lord, and she or he brings it down into the midst of the people. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is read in the middle of God's people. Then the gospel book is returned to the altar. After the ministry of the word, the gospel book is set off to the side, and the Eucharistic elements, the real presence of Christ, his body and blood, are placed on the altar. As the deacon sets the table, water is added to the wine to remember our baptism and the water and blood that flowed through Jesus' side at his crucifixion. Until recently, I didn't know that while pouring the water, the deacon is invited to silently or quietly pray, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. The authority of that prayer is for all of us. Just as Jesus' identity as equal with God was never at risk when he humbled himself to serve us, our identity in Christ is secure. Therefore, we can serve others and we can raise a hallelujah. At the end of the service, it is again the pleasure of the deacon to send us forth into the world, back into the particular microcosm of each of our personal worlds, having been strengthened by the word of life that we've just heard and nourished by the body and blood of Christ that we've just consumed, thus prepared to face the joys and the struggles of the week ahead. Today, in addition to the water of baptism that we partake of at the communion table, we also have the privilege of repeating our baptismal vows. Martin Luther said that a Christian life is nothing else than a daily baptism, begun once and continuing ever. We thus go about our daily affairs living in the covenant that God made with us in our baptism, walking wet, a metaphor for being a disciple. And just as baptism takes place within a particular body of Christ, in the story that I just told you about the woman whose voice had become a whisper, I hope you heard that some part of her healing took place in community. The Apostle Paul writes the letter to the Philippian church, a community. 
Church of the Redeemer, while decidedly imperfect, nevertheless seeks to be a healthy spiritual community committed to discipling one another, as Pastor Paul preached last week. In resurrection power, as baptized disciples in service to our risen Lord, we lift our united voices and say, Jesus, we belong to you raising a hallelujah because heaven himself, Jesus, our Redeemer, fights for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.